Um, some of you know that I was a campus minister at uh, the University of Delaware before I was here. Uh, go Blue Hens. And uh, I, one of my favorite memories is having this passage read uh, as we were doing a series in the Old Testament and the center for UD's football team, so huge guy, uh, got up and read this passage and struggled through a few names. Jennifer did quite well. And then at the end of it, the students stood up and applauded him for having done this momentous thing. Uh, so anyways, sorry, Jennifer, no applause this morning. Um, my guess is that this is a passage that for many of us, you know, it was perhaps hard to pay attention and, and listen well as this was being read, um, but this passage shows us beautiful things about Jesus, and so if you would, pray with me, and then uh, we're going to open this this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see in this passage more than a list of names, that we would remember that each of these names, uh, there are people and stories behind them that you know these people as you know us and you know our names. And I pray that you would help us this morning um, to see your grand work of redemption in history and to see uh, how you are weaving our stories into that one big story and that it would change the way that we live in this world and that it would encourage our, our hope and our faith and our trust in you. I pray that you would do this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so if you know anything, anything about jazz at all, which I'm not assuming that you do, but if you do know anything about jazz, you know that one of the most historic jazz clubs in New York City is this place. Uh, it's one of the best places on the face of the earth called the Village Vanguard. There have been so many uh, famous recordings, uh, over a hundred famous recordings at the Village Vanguard. Uh, old players like um, uh, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, Bill Evans, modern people like Brad Meldow, Kurt Rosenwinkel. I realize some of these names mean nothing to you. Um, I have been to the Village Vanguard four times. I made a trip every year when we were in Philly up to New York to go to the Village Vanguard to see uh, some of these people, actually. And it is, it's a small club. It's uh, 123 people can fit. That's maximum capacity. It is underground. You're squeezed into this tight area with all these tables. The stage comfortably fits maybe five-ish people. Uh, if you're in that first or second row, you can pretty much reach out and touch the musicians. Um, and in 2001, uh, Wynton Marcellus, who's a very famous jazz trumpet player, uh, he was playing at the Village Vanguard, and it was actually a very rare occurrence because Wynton Marcellus would pack out like the Lincoln Center and, you know, like the Chicago Orchestra uh, Center. Um, he would pack out these huge venues, and he was there, and he wasn't even the headliner that night. He was a side musician in this gig. And he gets up at one point, and he plays this ballad unaccompanied, so just trumpet, he plays this ballad called, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. And there was this um, uh, journalist in the audience, you know, kind of reporting on what was happening. And, and he plays, you know, the melody, and then he goes through and he starts 
improvising on that melody. And then at the very end of the song, he comes back to the melody again, and he's, he's playing the last line, the title line of the song, and he plays each note with just a little bit more space and focus on it. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. And the audience is like on their seat waiting for him to finish this, and then a cell phone goes off. And this is 2001. So imagine those like horrible, wretched, beeping cell phone lines. The one that comes to mind, I don't know if this is the one, but it's, I am imagining, if you remember that god-awful cell phone ring. So that, it comes in, and the journalist looks down at his page, he takes his pen, and he scratches the word, magic ruined. And that is similar to how Matthew begins his gospel. If you have the scriptures, I'd encourage you to have it open because we're going to be kind of picking apart this text and I want you to see some things in this text. The beginning of any work communicates uh, what the author is trying to say to us uh, and each of the gospels begins in a different way. Matthew begins his telling of the good news of Jesus with this long list of names. And in doing this, there's two things that I want us to see in this text this morning. First, uh, I want us to see the problem for which Jesus came. And then second, the surprising hope of what we see in this list of names. The problem for which Jesus came and the surprising hope. So first, the problem. Uh, The genealogy, this is a way of of telling Israel's history, Israel's story, which is, in a sense, to say this is a way to tell the story of God's uh, redemptive work in history in the world because Israel was the nation through whom God was going to undo all of the brokenness that had come into the world through sin. And he was going to restore everlasting peace and shalom and wholeness to his creation and his world And in a sense, like a beautiful piece of music, Matthew, the genealogy tells the story of Israel and the way that Matthew orders and presents Jesus' family tree, the very literary structure of what Matthew's doing here shows us the problem of why Jesus came. And the problem is the exile. Or as Matthew puts it in verse 11, 12, and 17, the deportation to Babylon. The problem for which Jesus came is the exile. And I realize that for some of us that feels so irrelevant or distant. First, I want us to see this morning why that's the case in Matthew. I want to show you what Matthew's doing and then I want uh, to try to connect this to our lives and help you to feel why this matters for you. So, Matthew's genealogy, it it follows this literary pattern called a chiasm. The most nerdy part of the sermon is right now, so if you can just dig in, uh, it'll touch ground in a second. Chiasms, that's why you came to church this morning, to learn about chiasms. Uh, This is an ancient uh, literary pattern, it's used in the Bible uh, in various places. A chiasm is basically repetition in reverse order. So, if you look up here, I'm going to try to kind of outline it for you from your vantage point. So if you were using letters, it would be like A, B, C, C, B, A. A, B, C, C, B, A. 
If you look at verse 1, you see the start of a chiastic structure. You have Jesus Christ, A, son of David, B, son of Abraham, C. And then you see this structure repeated in the passage, but in reverse. So verse 2, Abraham, C. Verse 6, David, B. Verse 16, Jesus, C, C, B. A, B, C, C, B, A. See how that works? Oh, it's beautiful. Um, so that's, you see this in verse 1, but then it's mirrored and it's repeated in verse 17. So you see the same thing, verse 1, Jesus, David, Abraham. And then in verse 17, it's repeated, but in the reverse, Abraham, David, Jesus. It's this like perfect literary chiasm, except that's not all you have in the passage. There is one thing. There's all this list of names. There's only one event that's mentioned in the passage. And there's this thing that intrudes and interrupts the very literary structure. And it's that thing found in verse 11, 12, and 17. It's the deportation to Babylon. It's the exile. Like Wynton Marcellus's magical music, this genealogy tells the story of what God has been doing in history, how he has been weaving together his ancient promises and how he has been so faithful to bring redemption and restoration to the world. And, and, and we see that and then it's broken. It's broken in the exile. It's broken through sin. Matthew 1.1 highlights that this thing that God is doing in the world through Jesus, through David, through Abraham, that this is a worldwide kingdom. Abraham's the one, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, where God says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing and in you all the nations are going to be blessed. That's God's worldwide purpose from the beginning with Israel. And David is the one through whom the kingdom is going to come. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises that it's going to be through his line that this everlasting kingdom is coming. And the exile, like you have to hear the intrusive cell phone in the mind and hearts of Israelites as it seems like all of this is coming undone. All of this is ruined. Because how do you get salvation for the world if the very instrument through whom this salvation was supposed to come is in exile, is being judged by God? And how is it that there's going to be this righteous king who's going to restore the world, who's going to defeat evil? How is that going to happen if there isn't a king? It's significant for Israel and it's also significant for us. Again, I realize you may be hearing this and thinking, that's really interesting, but two and a half millennia ago, what does that have to do with me? The exile is confirmation that humanity is lost. Because the exile is a theme that doesn't just happen to Israel, but it goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So, Genesis chapter 3, when humanity turned from God, they are exiled from the garden. It's that state of spiritual homelessness, of not being at home with the God of life. And if you, like, think about it. What happens to Israel is a reliving out of the story of Adam and Eve. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, right, it begins with creation. And God takes this family, Adam and Eve, and he puts them in a garden. And he calls them to obey him and love him and spread his kingdom. And they turn from him and they sin and they're exiled from the garden. 
And then what happens with Israel? God takes Israel, this family, and he brings them into a land that's so often described in the Bible as being like the Garden of Eden. And he calls them to obey him and to share in his love and spread his kingdom. And of course, they sin and they're exiled. What happens to Israel is just a picture of what is, in a sense, true of all humanity. Hosea, the prophet, in uh, chapter 6, verse 7, says of the nation of Israel, they, like Adam, transgressed the covenant. Israel's exile is depicted by Jeremiah, the prophet, as a decreation. In a sense, like all that God was seeking to do in creation, it's coming undone again. There's this part in Jeremiah 4 this passage where the prophet, he's depicting what's going to happen to Israel, the coming invasion, and he, and he pictures uh, and he hears the sound of trumpets as the enemies are coming into Israel and they're going to destroy it. And then he says this in verse 23, chapter 4, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. Without form and void. That's Genesis 1 language. That's what the state of creation was before God ordered it and, and, and he put it in this beautiful place for humanity to live in and to dwell in and to extend it. Now it's like everything is coming back and it's broken and it's messed up and it's chaotic. So I want you to try to locate where you feel that this morning. Where you feel disorder. Where you feel chaos where you feel spiritually homeless or wandering. That's exile. And it's not something that's only even true, you know, like if you don't believe in Jesus. Uh, if you're someone here this morning and you believe in Jesus, three times in First Peter, Peter refers to Christian believers, those reading his letter, as exiles. Because there is a sense in which we are still not home either. The state of exile, we're reminded each year of this in Advent, especially when we sing, in my opinion, my favorite Advent hymn, which is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. If you're not familiar with it, it's actually the last hymn that we're going to read. I'm going to talk about it a little bit. You may want to flip there if it's not like immediately accessible for you. We've been singing through this in family uh, discipleship. If you get that email or if you do that with your kids, um, we've been singing through this hymn the last few weeks. This is a song about exile and about longing for Jesus to return and to bring us home, right? Verse 1, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Uh, last week, we were singing verse 5 in our home. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. And my almost five-year-old, Liam, uh, asks the question, Dad, what's misery? What does it mean that Jesus is going to close the path of misery? How do you answer that? Um, I scrambled and said something like, do you know when you feel really sad? And he kind of nodded. Jesus is going to end all sadness. And then I've been thinking about this hymn a bunch over the last few weeks, and it kind of struck me. One of the main themes that this hymn develops is death. If you look at uh, verse uh, 3 and 4, for example, 
O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Or verse 4, O come, thou dayspring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy, gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. This is life in exile. It's life being away from God and not being at home with God, the God of all life and joy. It's that brokenness. It's the gloom. It's the shadow. It is death. And I've been reflecting on that this week in in various ways. And this hymn captures so well the way that the Bible itself speaks about death. That it's, it's like a dark shadow that hovers over our lives. That it's like a covering that's cast over peoples and over nations. It's like this veil. It's this thing that sort of colors everything. All the enjoyments of life. All relationships Relationships with friends, with spouse, with kids, with pets. I mean, you just keep going on and on. Colored, this, all these things colored by this sense of, in the end, we lose them. And the last few days in particular, I've been thinking about death, and I think it's really true. You know, of course, this is depressing, so like, you know, you can kind of try to shut your brain off and not think about this, but it's like a covering that's cast over everything, because as I, over the last few days, um, have had moments with my wife or with my kids, there's this reality that at some point, I will lose them, or they will lose me. And then you think about your work and you think about what you do in the world and, and it's like, and in the end, I'm going to be gone and what's going to come of the things that I do? I mean, that's the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the chief features of exile is death. That's what God said to Adam and Eve. When you eat of this, you will die. And now you're going to go back to the dust. Israel's own exile is depicted as a death. Ezekiel 37, the nation's dead. Their dry bones are scattered. It seems hopeless. And I know some of us can really connect with this at this time. Um, I mean, I I speak this morning and uh, my grandmother, who is in her mid-80s, lies in a hospital wing with COVID. I know many of you have lost family and friends to COVID. I know people connected to our congregation who have had friends and people in other parts of the country, not COVID things, but just like die suddenly, gone. And I want to ask what normally is a really not polite question to ask. Are you ready to face this? Do you have a certain hope that can actually look death in the face? Matthew begins his gospel and he highlights and he's showing his readers Jesus has come to end the exile. He's come to put death's shadows to flight. He's come to end the misery. He's come to take the sting of death away and one day in his return to end all death and to bring us home and to wipe the tears away from our eyes. That's why Jesus has come. But not only is Jesus going to do this, 
But Matthew shows us that, that the work of God in history and the work in Jesus is a surprising thing. And it's something that can give us a surprising hope in our lives. So I want us to think about that now, the surprising hope that this passage gives us. Look at verses 2 through 6. Four women show up in this genealogy in these verses. Uh, Verse 3, Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. Verse 6, Bathsheba, who is not named that, but is referred to, as Jennifer was reading this, this stuck out to me in a whole new way. The wife of Uriah. Like, immediately, like, adultery is being underlined almost in this genealogy. It's not even David's wife, in a sense. Four women, they're all Gentiles. Tamar was a Canaanite, Rahab belonged to the city of Jericho, Ruth is a Moabite, and Bathsheba, through her connection to Uriah, is a Hittite. They're all Gentiles, they're not Jews. All four have histories and stories of brokenness and sadness. Tamar was a woman who was sinned against and caught up in the brokenness of a patriarchal culture, and her story involves pretending to be a prostitute, and she's impregnated by her father-in-law. Rahab actually was a prostitute. Uh, Bathsheba, I just mentioned this, right? Her relationship with David began in adultery, and then her husband's murdered by David. And Ruth, maybe not as immediately questionable, but she's a Moabite, which may not mean a whole lot to us, but that's a really big deal. Because uh, in the Bible, the Moabite people is the product of an incestual relationship between Lot and one of his daughters, Genesis 19. And so there's this stigma that's connected with the Moabites. And then when Israel's coming into the land, the Moabites oppose them dramatically. And so there's this thing said in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, that Moabites are excluded from Israel's community for 10 generations because of this thing they did. And here's Ruth, a Moabite, in the genealogy. These stories are a part of Jesus' story. And Matthew clearly does not give us every single person in the genealogy. It's not like, well, I guess I have to put these people in. There is clear selection in what he is giving us. And yet he gives us these stories of brokenness, of pain, of sadness, stories involving sin, but also involving repentant trust and faith in God's mercy. And it's like Jesus is saying to us right at the beginning, these people belong to me. These are my mothers. I am not ashamed of them. I'm not afraid to call them family. And isn't that hopeful? Isn't that surprisingly hopeful? The surprising hope of this passage, I think, is an invitation for us to hope in this way. It's an invitation for all of us here to look at our lives, especially those places in our lives that feel broken, that feel messy, where we feel stuck, where we feel discouraged, and to hope afresh in the Lord's redeeming work. To look at situations, even, you know, people, situations in our world, and look at the brokenness, but yet, have this posture toward these things, toward ourselves, toward others, with this sense of hope and trust in God. Uh, A few years ago, um, I was meeting with uh, a counselor, uh, one of my uh, former professors in seminary, and uh, I won't go into detail, but it it was a time where I was feeling uh, very stuck 
in lots of different ways. And just generally kind of discouraged. So I, I was feeling stuck and discouraged just, you know, personally, uh, parentally, uh, marriage, family. And he asked me this question. He said, Nick, where are you hopeful toward your family, toward your kids, toward yourself, toward all these things? And then he clarified, where are you Holy Spirit, kingdom of God at work, God at work in the world, hopeful? And it was a really annoying question, as you can imagine. It was a little bit more statement than question. But it was an invitation to me to have a posture toward these spaces in my life where I felt really kind of stuck and really kind of hopeless and just kind of down. And to have real hope. There's one other thing I want you to notice. Um, look at verse 16. It's really small, but I think it's also really significant. In a genealogy, the pattern is... We read it. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so, father of father of father of father of father of, et cetera. Verse 16, there's a break, obviously, because Joseph is not the father of Jesus. He's the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, but not the father. God works in surprising ways, but he also works in supernatural ways. Sometimes when we think about hope, and I'll speak personally, when I think about hope, it's like, well, I can hope in it if I can see it. So there's certain things that I can hope in because, sure, I guess that could happen and that could happen and that could happen and that could happen. And so, sure, I can hope in that. But this passage shows us that not only does God work in ways that totally surprise us, and not only does he work in people that would totally surprise us, I mean, a Moabite, a Canaanite, a prostitute belonging to an enemy city, Really? But God also works in supernatural ways, in ways that confound our wisdom and we just don't understand how he does what he does. And what I want you to do, and I think the application for us, is to take those very sort of exilic experiences of our lives, the brokenness, the sadness, the chaos, the things that are hard, and I want us to imagine what it would look like to move toward those things and to view them through this sort of surprising, hopeful lens and this sort of hope and trust in this kind of God. Because this is really the surprising hope of the gospel, right? Matthew 1 is just a foretaste of what God is doing the God who works in surprising ways, the God who works in supernatural ways, who confounds human wisdom because this God came into the world and he took on flesh and he's going to do his most surprising work when he's going to fulfill all of his ancient promises and he's going to give the answer to death and the exile and all of this by his own shameful death and exile. That he's going to put to flight the shadows of death as he pays the penalty of death himself. That he's going to take the miseries of this life in our place to close that path forever to anyone who would believe and who would receive him. That's the kind of 
hope that is offered to each of us today. Hope for our life. Hope in the midst of death. Hope in the midst of all the sadness. The uh, night at the Village Vanguard, um, Wynton Marcellus is playing. Terrible cell phone goes off. He paused for a moment. And then in a stroke of genius, he played the cell phone line, note for note. And then he played it again. Then he played it again and he started messing with it. And then he started improvising on the cell phone line. And, he, and eventually he took the very intrusion into the beauty and he brought it into the song and he finished it. And everyone in the audience just like exploded in like praise and just like that was the most amazing thing that we've ever seen. And that is a picture of Jesus. That is a picture of just the recreative, redemptive wisdom and grace of God in Jesus Christ who takes all of these like broken and messy people, broken and messy situations, the cross itself which seemed so wrong and opposed to what God was going to do and yet he uses it to bring life out of death. Amen. We have an opportunity now, as we always do, uh, a time for silent prayer. And I want to encourage you to actually practice what, what we've just spoke of. To take in our, in our minds and our hearts all the places where life feels hard and broken and messy and sad, all the burdens we carry, and to actually go to the one who can help us and who delights to do so. So let's take a moment to do that, and then uh, Jeff's going to come up and lead us in prayer.